recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A production of Get a Grip Management and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. It is presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Rab Lighting. Go to R-A-B-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G dot com slash dark sky. Greg Eric, go there now, buddy. I will and I have and I am. Rab Lighting, 75 years in business. Now, you're talking dark sky, they have everything you need for it. They are the outdoor lighting leaders. They've got floodlights, wall packs, area lights, canopy lights, roadway lights, decoratives, poles, landscape, anything on the exterior Rab has. And it's high quality and great product, and you see it everywhere. And in addition to that, they have the indoor cover, too. They've got everything you need for the inside, lamps, fixtures, kits, everything, recess cans that are awesome. And then to top it all off, the best lighting control system in the business, Light Cloud. Easy to use, great interface, customers love it, the industry loves it. Check them out. That's right. You got to go to rablighting.com. That's R A B L I G H T I N G dot com slash forward slash. That's right, forward slash dark sky. That's rablighting.com forward slash dark sky. Right now, here comes Jane Slade, starving for darkness. Ruskin Hartley. Nice How to are be you? With you? Yeah. I'm you know, great. we're. We're lost in the wilderness of electric light, brother. <laughs> say, we certainly are. Though. Spend say, all day on it. Yeah, say hello to Jane Slade. Hey, Ruskin. So nice to have you on the podcast. This is the second episode of Starving for Darkness, and we are just so happy to have you here as the director of the International Dark Sky Association. We actually really want to start the show asking the guests each guest the same question, which is, can you please tell us about your most profound dark sky experience, something either prior to becoming the director or after, perhaps a memory as a child, something that you remember as having a profound experience underneath the dark sky? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think, to be honest, it really wasn't until I joined IDA that I really understood what it meant to the International Dark Sky Association. As a child, I, I do remember my parents dragging me out in the middle of the night to see Halley's Comet and being singularly unimpressed by the little smudge that was up there. I don't think it was a particularly great transit. Um, and suddenly I had that connection with the sky and the world outside, but it wasn't until I joined the International Dark Sky Association and people took me up to uh, a pretty iconic place just outside Tucson, which is the Kitt Peak National Observatory. It's really the United States national, you know, national telescopes up there. And it was um, it was a classic dark sky night. It was it was in I think it was February, and it was one of those incredibly beautiful days in in southern Arizona where it had been beautiful, warm, and sunny during the day. And we were up there as the sun was going down across across the desert, and you could just start to see one star pop out, and then 
two and then three and then there was like a riot of stars coming out over overhead and I, I thought I knew some of the basic constellations like Orion and, and I certainly know it under a polluted sky because you can pick out the bright stars but when you see it under a sky which is truly uh, dark it is remarkable to see and, and in a sense the constellation gets lost in the in the universe of stars above and that, that was a very special moment for me. Hmm. This is a follow-up question that I didn't have planned, but you you provoked it, which is, did it change your thought process of your day to, did you change somewhere inside of you after looking so at the stars? Yeah, it, it made me realize how much we're missing. I mean, how, how much we're missing uh, as a society and a, and a culture. And I think it's really emblematic of much of what's going on uh, in the world. We, we, we've kind of reset our, our benchmark, our baseline. <laughs> most of us are used to these days living under a light polluted sky. And most of us are not even aware of that. It made me think about, okay, what else are we missing? You know, be that you might be out walking in a beautiful wood, <laughs> uh, but maybe that wood has really been changed and transformed because of the way that we have managed it over, over time. So it really was profound to look up and say, okay, that's what it used to look like. And, and now let's look mm -hmm. at what it is for most people around the world today. Yes. So tell us about the International Dark Sky Association, especially for a listener who may not have that much familiarity with your organization. Yeah, well, International Dark Sky Association is, it's, our mission is pretty simple. We're all about protecting the night from light pollution. Um, and it's really in our name, since we're talking a lot to the, the lighting design community here, we, know we, we like to say we're about dark skies, not, not about the dark ground. Um, so we were founded, founded 32 years ago um, here in Tucson, Arizona, always with, with the belief from the start that um, if we are to ensure people continue, continue to have access to a beautiful, rich, dark sky, um, we have to take steps here on Earth to manage light responsibly. So from the start, we were never about turning the lights off. We are always about promoting the responsible use of light. And I'd say that whilst we came out of the very much out of the professional and amateur astronomy field, now most many of our members are passionate about wildlife, they're passionate about human health, they're just passionate about creating a beautiful, sustainable environment for people to live in. Practically speaking, we are a, a US-based 501c3 nonprofit mm -hmm. uh, organization. Uh, and really our strength comes through our network of dark sky members, dark sky ambassadors and dark sky advocates uh, around the world. They're active on every continent, working in their community to pr promote the value of, of, of dark skies and, uh, and the responsible use of light. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the current initiatives of the IDA that you're most excited about? Yeah, well, there's a couple there. I'll start with probably with our, our signature program, one that we're probably best known for, which is our International Dark Sky Places program. Um, mm. This is a set of, really a set of best practices for, for land management, be that a, a wilderness area, a, a classic park, um, or in fact, a community. And it stands the gamut, and it's really um, a set of standards that talk about both the quality of the night sky when you're talking about dark sky places, but critically, um, what steps you're taking to use light responsibly in those places, be it a city um, uh, or, or a park, and also what steps you're taking to really educate and inform the public about these, these, these values. That program's growing fast. It, we started with one place 20 years ago, which was Flagstaff. We've got a slow start, but in the last couple of years, we have added 50 new places and we're now up to 174 
uh, around the world, again, on every continent apart from Antarctica. Uh, and we're seeing strong, robust growth uh, in that area. And, and, and really, what's important about that, that's a place that people can go and really uh, enjoy both the dark sky, but most importantly, go and understand what responsible life means for the society. Um, in terms of our the other current initiative that we're really excited about is really the collaboration and the emerging partnerships with groups such as NAILS, but also the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America and work with the CIE over in Europe to really um, come together around what does dark sky protection mean? How can we use um, light? responsibly and efficiently um, so that we can meet our needs as, as a society, uh, but also protect the natural world. And those were really codified last time I chatted with Michael was on the other podcast with, with Brian Liebel, really announcing those five principles for the, the efficient and effective use of, of light, which I think have really um, uh, take people are taking notice of those. You know, what's interesting about that is uh, we brought that to the board after and they said, well, what is Nail going to do about it? <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a good question, right? Yeah. What are you going to do about it? And um, it's hard to answer because there's, there's so much momentum in the wrong direction. Um, yeah. You know, uh, with high Kelvin temperature outdoor lighting, and I don't want to get too much into the science of lighting on this. I want to stay kind of a little bit away from it. I mean, we'll touch on it or whatever, but... I mean, it's hard for the momentum is towards more light, higher Kelvin temperature, more uniformity, brighter, keep it lit all night. And there's a lot of momentum in that direction. Um, and it, 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 it's sort of a casualty of the LED lighting boom as, as a whole. How do we reverse that momentum, Ruskin Hartley? How do we get it back going the other way? Yeah, well, just to put some numbers on, the, on that, I think it's important to sort of level set, know that, that this really is an issue. So there are estimates now that 83% of the world's population lives under a light-polluted sky. No, it doesn't mean that they can't see any that. stars, but it's essentially the vast majority of people, you know, because we live in cities and we tend to overlight our cities. And 99% and of people in Europe and North America, again, live under a light polluted sky. So that's the, that's the norm. Um, that trend you mentioned, Michael, is, is real. Um, we estimate, or colleagues or scientists estimate, that light pollution is growing globally at least twice the rate of population growth. Some places are doing well, maybe it's just tracking population growth, but some places they're seeing double digit increases in light pollution uh, annually. Now that's having serious consequences for wildlife. Millions of birds are killed each year through collisions that you know, being drawn into and colliding with overlit buildings where the lights are left on after midnight when no one's there. What, what's the point in that? It's a, it's a main contributor to the, one of the key contributors to the decline of insects. And anyone who cares about our food supply should really care about what's happening with insects. Uh, um, and leave aside you know, just the waste of energy and the contribution to climate change. So it's a real issue that affects uh, almost every aspect of our life, whether we know it or not. Now, that trend you mentioned is also, you know, yes, the LED revolution has certainly made it worse. Uh, but I'd argue at each point over the history of electric light over the last 100 years, um, light has generally got more efficient and it's also got cheaper. And anyone who's, I'm not an economist, but basic economics, if as things get cheaper, you tend to use more of it. And really that's what happened with the LED revolution. We suddenly could put more light out there 
uh, we could put it more cheaply and, and in the same hand, we could feel good about it because we were using less energy. Uh, it's become pretty clear that whilst, yes, we were using less energy per fixture, um, overall the LED revolution has uh, not realized all the energy savings it could because we have taken some of those savings and we've put more light out there. Um, that's called that's called Javon's paradox. Actually, there's a name for it. Oh, oh, the cheaper good, something yeah. becomes, the more of it you use, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed uh, and, to and, yeah, Javon's paradox. Yeah, it's a yeah. tough one. No, the, the 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 flip side of the the LED revolution is it has actually given us the tools we need to solve this this issue. Um, LEDs have some remarkable features. Um, yes, they're energy efficient, um, but they're also controllable, both in terms of your ability to direct the light where you need it. And I think what we're particularly excited about is the ability to control them over time. The old light, I'm not a lighting person, mm -hmm. but the old light fixtures, you have to kind of warm it up and get it on and Mm -hmm. Maybe it would take 10 minutes and there was certainly no dim in those fixtures. Now an LED, you can dim it down in, in a matter of, you know, sub-seconds. So some cities, you know, that they're, they're able to, like City of Tucson recently upgraded, I know, 30,000, 40,000 streetlights. They changed them from old high-pressure sodium over to LEDs and by considering shielding, um, illumination levels are critical, how much light they're putting on the ground and dimming um, at certain times of, of, of night, they're able to reduce light pollution by 7%, and they also save $2.3 million a year uh, to the city budget um, without compromising, and we would argue, and actually enhancing um, safety for many of the residents. Yeah, there's a big there's a big conversation there, but I'm gonna go over to Jane here. She's yeah. excited. So. so we, as you said, we have all the tools which is interesting because that there's many other forms of climate change where we do not have all the tools. In fact, we're yeah. scrambling. And, you know, in every, all of the research I've done, I, I truly believe that light pollution is the snake in the grass that's getting, uh, that's causing uh, immense climate change that people are not paying attention to because it does not yeah. elicit alarm. Yeah. So if we have all the tools, then the problem is in our thinking. So what would you say is your biggest challenge in terms of addressing the thoughts that are creating this problem um, with the yeah. people on the planet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it runs very deep, Jane. I mean, it, it's like people have been drawn to the light for as long as we've been human. You know, we've, you know the, sitting around the fire and the hearth is a place of warmth and safety. and and in a sense, we still have that innate um, draw uh, to light at night. Um, and as, as we just discussed, what's changed is it's much easier to put more of it out there now. Um, and again, I, th I think the trick is how, how do we reframe this? This is not about not having light at night. It's having about the right light at night in the right place and, and reframing some of the pervasive narratives out there. The, 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 one of the pervasive narratives we hear all the time is, you know, uh, more light makes you more safe. Well, the reality is more light does not make you more safe. You might, you might feel like it makes you more safe, but the reality is poorly applied light at night, which often means more bright white light, particularly glare, makes you less safe. It makes you less able to see your environment. It makes it easier uh, for, for you to miss the things out in the shadows. So that's the piece that I think we need to reframe. You know, it is about the quality 
of light at night and using low illumination levels, using warmer, richer colors uh, at night and applying it carefully and thoughtfully and not just brushing over the whole world and over lighting it because we can, because it's simple. And I think that's really where there's a, a huge responsibility on both the, the lighting design community and also the distributor community uh, to get informed and educated. And it's not about selling less product, it's about selling better product. Yes, and, and what's, what's interesting about what you said about safety, I think the word safety is one of those words that's kind of lost its meaning, especially um, you know, in the last year. Like, what, what do you mean by safety? You know, prison yards are safe, um, you know, uh, you know and, and the tendency towards um, you know, over-lighting poor communities is an issue. Like, do we, do we change our behavior? Do we act differently when 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 uh, the the night is lit up like the day? And what you yeah. know, one of the bones of contention that that I would say is that um, you know, light at night encourages behavior that maybe we don't want. You know, and I, and the, there's this focus on nudging, like the I, it came out of the UK with David Cameron. I, I think you're British or Australian, British. I don't no, I'm British. I'm British. Right. So uh, David Cameron came out with this idea of nudging many years ago. And one of the things that we've nudged is like, you know, behavior at night. And, and I think that when, when things are overlit, it encourages people to stay out at night at, at times when maybe they should go home. And if we were to use those lights to change color, to, to, to warm, and then maybe to dim, I think it would encourage people not to be on the streets at, at night when maybe we don't want crowds of people out there. Is that something that you guys have, in, have investigated at all, or is there any studies on that? You know, we haven't studied that directly, and uh, and no, uh, we 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 never we tend not to take positions on whether should be people should or should not be out at night. Sure. But what I can tell you is that there are. There's, there was a study actually out of the University of Utah last year that looked at that issue about uh, light pollution and disadvantaged communities. And it was clear in the US that if, if you are a member of a, a disadvantaged community, you're much more likely to live in an area of high light pollution. Um, and, and, and I think that's a trend that we've seen o over many generations of, you know, coming into poorer communities where maybe crime is an issue. And instead of looking at the root cause of those issues, just putting up more light and saying, you'll be safer here. And time and time again, that has failed. Um, and and, and you know, it, it's just a real issue for us, now, both, um, you know, what, both people's access to a naturally dark sky and uh, people's access and ability to live in communities that have a, a lit responsibly as opposed to overlit. Well, I visited your Twitter this morning and I saw that you had a post very recently about uh, how basically how BIPOC uh, or people of color um, receive the dark sky movement and how what is the impression of the dark sky. And so in your work of trying to diversify this movement, um, what have you found? Yeah, that's something that we're, we're you know, we're, we're we're taking very seriously at at, at the moment. I mean, in common with many 
environmental organizations, you know, we, our constituents and our board, even our staff don't represent the sort of diversity of, of, of the people around us. Uh, and that we see that, that as a real issue. So I think it's really about learning and, and deep listening and, and really understanding what are the issues with, with, with different communities and how do they relate to, to, to the night sky. Um, we have done some work with uh, indigenous communities, for instance. You know, some of them have come together to protect um, you know, the cultural heritage of dark sky places, be that up at uh, Canyon de Chez up here in, in Arizona or, or some of the communities out in New Zealand, really you know, embracing dark sky protection because of the cultural heritage uh, of those and, and helping share those stories. Um, so that, that's definitely an important thread for us going forward. And I think critically for the dark sky movement, um, if we are going to tackle this issue, this that means working with cities and communities, um, because the cities and communities are the sources of light pollution. Uh, and so how can you work with those communities to, to, to understand their needs uh, and understand how you can meet those needs whilst also uh, reducing the, the light footprint of these cities and communities? Mm-hmm. The uh, the idea of um, uh, that dark skies are, um, you know, I think we all have a human heritage uh, towards um, seeing the stars. And I think there's an anthropological element to this where, like, you think about the pyramids, Ruskin. You know, the Great Pyramid of Giza is aligned to the center star of Orion's belt every 12,500 years or something ridiculous like that. I mean, I, I, I get corrected all the time on the on this show, but there's something like that. And then the, the Sphinx looks at the, uh, the constellation Leo at the same moment that, as that happens. It's something like that. Um, so we, we as a species, beyond all these communities, have a relationship to the night sky, which is super important in our heritage. But, you know, Jane brings it up. There are generations of people who have never seen a dark sky. Like there are, it's yeah. almost as if we don't know what we're missing or something. And, yeah. it, it, you know, I, I think that contributes to, you know, some of our, our issues and our problems in society right now. Do you feel like that's true? And does your organization feel like that's true? Yeah, absolutely. We believe that one of the reasons, there are many reasons to deal with light pollution, so one of those reasons is to kind of reclaim that cultural heritage, rediscover the connection to to the, the stars above, the, you know, the stars above, the heavens above, literally, where, they were, where were we, almost every single culture is where they told their stories. They recorded mm-hmm. their stories, it, it, their, their folklore, their oral traditions. They captured them in the, star, in the stars above. And yes, those have been passed down through us o- o- over time. Um, and you know, in some degree, we, we, we still explore those stories. But the vast majority of people alive today and the vast majority of people being born today will, you know, unless they take extraordinary steps, will never have, you know, it will be an unusual occurrence. It will be have to, have to be something that they will go and seek out. Now, I think, fortunately, people are turning upwards. You know, one of the trends we've seen in the last years, we've all been <laughs> sheltering at home, um, as, as the, the COVID pandemic has swept around the world, as we've seen more people at home with nothing less to do and not the ability to travel. So they've been looking up um, and they have been exploring and, and Rediscovering the, the stars and the sky where, where they live at home, 
Uh, and we hope that that continue continue as we as the world gets back to normal that we can kind of capture that and remind people uh, of that connection. Uh, Have you heard of the Montreal Protocol? Have you heard of that? It's uh, I, I think I it, in 1987, um, a, the ozone layer was being depleted yeah. by CFCs, and there was yeah. a worldwide event in Montreal in I think it was 1987. I'm looking at my computer. Yes. And uh, thankfully, it was in Canada. I'm a Canadian. We're happy to say that that event took place in Canada. And and world leaders decided to limit the or eliminate the production of CFCs. And that solved the problem. So there's a sense of hope there. How do we get the larger environmental community to embrace this issue? Because I think a lot of environmentalists do, like light pollution is a metaphor or an analogy but I think what we want to accomplish on Starving for Darkness, Ruskin, is to create the idea that light pollution is pollution, full stop, not an analogy, yeah. not a metaphor. How do we do that? I love it that you said that light pollution is pollution. Light pollution is absolutely pollution. And I mean, I'm actually a case in point of this. I've worked in the conservation <laughs> environmental field for 20 years. Now, I'd heard about light pollution, but I'd always say, well, I'll work on the important issues like forest destruction or water quality in, in Southern California first. And, you know, we maybe, you know, don't won't, won't really get into that. And it was only when I sort of joined IDA and started to explore more really what the impact of light pollution is, I understood, okay, this is one that we can get to grips with. So I'd like CFCs and, and the depletion of the ozone, that was a real Herculean effort. It certainly is one of the success stories. You know, those those pollutants are persistent in the atmosphere, so it's taken a long time for them to sort of be removed from the system. I, I dealt with water quality and uh, plastic pollution in the oceans. We have no idea how to remove that. The nice thing about light pollution is once you turn the, flip the switch or turn the light down, it's removed. Uh, immediately, and if you're dealing with, you know, if you're concerned about um, wildlife loss or insects or e- even, you know, climate change, you 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 can either get at it by reducing your CO two emissions, and then over time they'll be removed from the atmosphere, and that will lead to better conditions, and then the wildlife will be saved, or you can just turn the light off, <laughs> shield the light, and the bird is not going to run into the building. It's kind of a it's a quick win. It's an easy win. And it's it's one that we should just do. Um, we like we like to think about um, you know light pollution is one of the one of the stresses stresses on the environment. It is the one that we can remove most quickly. I also think that it's a, a furthering of disconnection. And if we solved light pollution and brought the night sky back and that sense of wonder, yeah. that it would actually better fuel uh, through connection the rest of the climate change issues. Because I think we're we're so disconnected and we're so arrogant that we think that we can control everything down to the safety of light. So yeah. that I think it's it's actually a first place to start, even though intuitively as humans, we thought, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Let's let's move on to other things. That's really in the current of thought. And I, I actually think if we if we address light pollution it would be kindling for the rest of climate change movements. Now, I know that you're working with... Oh, sorry, go on. No, 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 you go on, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so I know that um, the IDA is currently working with the IES and that recently yeah. a collaboration between the two organizations published the um, five, what is it, the five principles for responsible outdoor lighting. And I wanted to ask, what has been the impact of that so far? Well, one of the impact we get to speak with people like you, I think, think we first met Tony Michael because he saw that press release and said, oh, something, there's something interesting. And I, and I think the, the impact has been, it, this has taken it from a sort of a niche issue and, and maybe on the environmental field to say, okay, this is actually, you know, representatives of the industry and the, the engineers in this field and the environmental sector and the conservation sector coming together and say, hey, we have a lot of common ground here. And so we, we have had more interest from the manufacturer industry and, and, and other groups saying, hey, there's something in here. Um, I would say that the, the, the principles themselves are not new. <laughs> the principles are things that we have advocated for, for a long time, as, and as, as have many others. So we're not going to take any ownership in terms of these, these concepts. They've been around for a long time. But I think by coming together well, with leadership in the IES and the, the board adopting it kind of put the world on notice. And, you know, um, this is just the right thing to do. If, if I had one change, it would, I would actually now drop the word responsible. Responsible sounds mm. like it's something that you, it's good for you and you should do it, but it, you know, it's like eat your greens as would you really want a hamburger, right? So this is right. just the right thing to do. This is not about responsibility. Yes, it is. It happens to be responsible. It's just good lighting. Mm. It just makes common sense. So mm. we've we've studied we 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 unpacked sort of the tragedy of the commons that exists with this issue, yeah. right? It's like a tragedy of the commons, yeah. but the commons ends up That's... not being a field in England; it's the entire world. Um, and you you have a lot of billionaires wanting to go to space, right? They want to go to Mars, and they want to you know Elon Musk with uh, you know and 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 um, Jeff Bezos. Blue Origin and these companies, they want to go to space, and I I, I find that interesting. I find that um, that idea of wanting to go to Mars and colonize Mars. I think there's something wrong though with the premise that you know we, we should probably start by allowing people to again view the night sky and to live and, and embrace darkness. And so what I wanted to ask you though, specifically on that from an industry perspective, so the, the tragedy of the commons is real. Um, this is not about impoverishing lighting companies. It's not about blame. It's not about looking back in anger and this sort of thing that seems to happen in the industry. You know, this is about the lighting industry really kicking off a dark sky lighting boom, Ruskin. Yeah. No, we like, think there's huge opportunities for businesses here. <clears throat> No, yeah. it's, 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 it's rather than going city by city and, and fighting, you know, I had the advocates fighting against the industry, you know, the industry comes in and say, look, we'll save all this money. All you have to do is put out these, you know, bright white fixtures and overlight the world, but you'll still have all these energy savings. Just do it. It's like, no, let's come up with a set of responsible specifications uh, that meet the needs of these cities, save them energy and put out, put out good lighting in, in, into, into the world. Um, you know, just just the, the biggest change is probably just stop overlighting the world. You know, even if most cities started using the recommendations from groups like IES and CIE, we would um, drop the lumen budget for the world by a significant amount and save huge amounts of energy. And there would be no net loss to, to anyone. Um, so there, there, there are some really simple steps to take. And for the, if I was in the lighting industry looking forward, you know, what's the future? Well, the, the future is controllability. 
know, you know the, some of the early starts and you know, maybe some of the reliability is not yet there, but it's coming. So the, the point that you can start to control the lights, so you can be dimming them down when no one's around and in the future, even managing the spectrum uh, from dawn to dusk, that's the future of, mm. of, of, of the environment here um, so that we have more choices. The, the number one application, the best application, the most obvious application for controls is outdoor lighting. It's the number one most effective, most, uh, I don't know how to describe it. The, 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 I, there's so much focus on the interior environment from companies uh, within the industry in terms of tunability, in terms of controllability. And I sell lighting systems to people every day, Ruskin. As soon as I leave this room, I'm back out selling lighting systems to people. And I'll tell you, like most warehouses and factories, they don't care about tunable lighting in their factories. They don't care about linkable lighting in their factories, like connecting fixtures and having a computer program which controls the fixtures in their factory. They just want them on, and then when they're done, they want them off. Okay? That's the reality of it. I hate to break the news to the lighting industry, but inside most applications, there are some applications where tunability is great. I, I agree with it. And I think it's awesome, but it'll be a niche market. In the exterior, it is so obvious that lighting controls are the best application. This is where it's, you know, you have the same fixture over and over and over again on a roadway or, you know, wall packs on the outsides of buildings. These are, you got 10 different types of fixtures, light fixtures. Let's control them. Let's tune them. Let's get them turned down, dimmed down, turned off, cut off. And it'll be a massive impact. And the lighting industry needs to hear that, that this is actually not negative. This is very positive for the lighting industry. This is going to set off a boom, a lighting boom. Well, I hope that is the case. We, we need more good light out there. We, we need more examples that we can point to and say, look, this city, this community, this, this developer, this store did it. They saved money and they re reduced the impact on the environment. So I think one of the biggest problems, or there's two problems. There's awareness, which is, quite frankly, the public at large is not aware of the problem. So that's, that's the main issue. And I always say, people are not monsters, they just don't know. But there's also consensus. And that's really hard. We're all stakeholders, and everyone has an opinion. And unfortunately, actually, light does impact people differently. In fact, uh, a 75-year-old gets half the light onto their retina as a 25-year-old. So the experience is very, very different. Uh, I know the IDA knows darkness. The IES knows light. And so it could, the MLO, the Model Lighting Ordinance, which was uh, published in 2011, I know that that was a hard-fought consensus amongst the committees that um, brought that to light. And so... I know that the MLO was on the docket to be uh, uh, reinvented, uh, to be looked at again. And so um, what is it like so far working with the IES and collaborating um, with lighting designers um, as a dark sky advocate? Well, it's, it's you know, the, the model lighting ordinance was a joint project of the, the IDA and the IES back in, as you say, it was published in 2011. Long before I joined the organization, I, I understand it took many years uh, to get it done. And, and it, as you said, it was a, a consensus 
product. And I think it's had some real impact on the world. I mean, it's been, you know, the concept of lighting zones has been picked up, particularly in California. Mm. The concept of the bug rating came out of that. That has been widely used. But it, it, that, but essentially that predated the, the arrival of LEDs and a lot of the, mm. the ability to control. So, yes, we are right at the early stages of evaluating that document, what's its impact, and then both organizations will make a decision as to what its future is. It's clear that we do need um, some good ordinances and codes that cities and communities can adopt so that they can um, deal with it from a regulatory and a, and a policy perspective. You know, the, the, that was why it's so important for, for, for IDA and IES to come together initially around um, these joint principles. So those joint principles then become a touchstone that we're able to point back to um, mm -hmm. a, 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 as we go through this process of updating the model lighting ordinance. Yes, uh, the lighting zones I think are fantastic because it really gets people to look around and see and, and ask themselves the, the hypothetical question, well, how much light is needed? Because I think that's a question that simply hasn't been asked. Um, people don't ask that. You know, it's is it bright or not? And often I ask people, how do you measure brightness? And you can't. Brightness is perceived. So there's a there's sort of a an experience of light that people are having, but there's not necessarily a questioning of it. And I think that the the part of the MLO that came up with um, zones really starts to become a, a more open dialogue between regular people experiencing light um, to kind of question what it is. So um, what has your experience been working with lighting designers? Well, the lighting designers span the gamut from people who get it and are true believers and, and, and uh, their whole mission in life is to educate their customers. So, okay, how could I meet your needs whilst also uh, producing a beautiful product that protects the, the sky and there's some designers who haven't got it yet and aren't being exposed to it. So th th there's no single community there. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I think what, what we can say is it, it, it is, it is, it is just too common for people not to employ lighting designers. That, that's the challenge. That's the issue. You know, the, the absence of lighting designers in many projects leads to bad outcomes. Yeah, so light, lighting distributors sell 90% of all yeah. commercial lighting systems. I think it's 90%. Okay, so um, that, means, that means electrical distributors as well as lighting distributors being the people that sell the stuff. They know nothing about this issue, which is why uh, the relationship between uh, Nailed and IDA is so... Uh, apt and timely, uh, you know, to educate those counter sales, those outside salespeople, the uh, the um, everybody in in the chain of lighting distribution as to this issue, make the public aware of it as well through Starving for Darkness, which is going to be a show. We're going to do all manner of TikTok videos, and we're going to really push clips. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding you, man. We're we're gearing up for this thing. We're going to be pushing it on TikTok and on Instagram and all these different places. So the public becomes aware. The counter sales and order desks of, of North America start to become aware of this issue. And then from the top, we need lighting ordinances from cities and, and, and preferably something that, you know, the EU could come out with and North America could, could come out with. I don't know if you could have a pan-global situation, but, you know, the European Union could definitely lead on this. They're, they are, if there's one thing Europe is good at, it's standards. 
right? If they could come out with a standard um, for for this, and, and I know they're a little bit ahead on this, and Britain came out with something a couple months ago yeah. as well. Uh, where are we? So we're, the grassroots is going to happen. We're going to start working on that. Yeah. The distributors are going to be educated. How do we get the the larger regulatory bodies involved in the situation? Yeah. Well, well you're right to point out that here's a global issue. and We shouldn't necessarily assume that leadership will come from the U.S. on this issue. I mean, the, mm. the, the U.S. situation is extremely complicated because the decisions tend to be made at a local level. That's just the reality of lighting at the moment. There's, there's no equivalent of the Clean Night Sky Act. There's no Clean Water Act for the night sky in the U.S. No, we'd love to see that. So there could be some more certainty um, over time. But there are countries, you know, there's some light pollution laws. There's actually one in Mexico that was put on the books last year. Uh, there's parts of Chile that have national light, you know, light pollution laws. And as you mentioned, in, in the UK, the All-Party Parliamentary Commission recently came out with a 10-point action plan to, to look at dark sky protection. Um, so there, there's an emerging trend of, of, of legislatures and policymakers taking it seriously. And it starts from what you said earlier. We have to take it seriously that art- excessive artificial light at night is a pollutant and needs to be regulated as such. What about the we EPA? Have the tools to do it. What about the EPA? Could could we get them? So I I made it when when uh, Al Lusinski from Inside Lighting he asked me for a prediction. Okay, he said make a prediction for 2021. So I emailed him back, and he's going to be mad at me because he he listens to this show. Um, but I said that uh, in 2021 the. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency will declare wasted light at night as hazardous waste. And he said, no, you can't do that because hazardous waste is, is, a, is a physical thing. It's, light is not physical. Can, should we start hitting the EPA and these uh, Environment Canada, for example, and I don't know what the EU body is, that, hey, this is hazardous waste. You need to, you need to legislate on it. Is that possible at all? Can we... Can we can we get them to start to, to get involved rather than ordinances, but rather sort of the 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 carrot and the stick, Ruskin? You know what I mean? Like there's a carrot yeah, and a I stick mean, here. Yeah, I mean I'm not an environmental lawyer, so I'm not intimately familiar <laughs> with that. How, how you go about do it, and and uh, I would certainly it would be great in 2021 if 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 the EPA and other bodies took it on as a serious issue and said, look, we we need to come together. We, no, we do think there should be a national level uh, discussion about the impact of artificial light on on people and the planet and, and wildlife, and, and kind of come up with a blue report in Stone for for developing. Um, national level policies, be that in Canada or, or in the US or any country. I mean, there's, again, there's a, an emerging, evolving body of evidence about all of the impacts. Um, but it is a much more, I think it's a more complex an issue than, you know, how much lead is in your water supply, you know, in parts per million, we kind of know much more about the impact of that on human health than we do. We, we, we're not at a point we can say this meant, this amount of illumination at this time of night over this period of time leads to the following impacts. But we know in general that, you know, too much artificial light at night is not good for your health. <laughs> um, so that's an emerging field. So getting back to the model lighting ordinance, what do you hope to see changed with the MLO? I'm not going to get into the specifics now. The, the, the outcome that we're seeking is, is a, a lighting ordinance that is readily understandable and can be broadly adopted. I think if, if there's one miss in that, it, 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 there's many aspects of that document that are good. Uh, it is a very complex document and it has had, hasn't had as much up 
uh, adoption as we had hoped, as the organization has hoped. So I really think that 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 that's what we're striving for. How can we, you know, if the decision is made to update it, how can we do that in a way that it can is can be readily adopted either in whole or in a modular basis, so um, that it can start to have an impact out in the world. Well, getting back to what you were saying about lighting designers not being a homogenous group of people, you're absolutely right. And um, what I'll say is one of my complaints is that a lot of times uh, for lighting designers, uh, the expression comes to mind, if I have a hammer, everything is a nail. And so yeah. I, I feel that there's been an obsession of with light as a tool, and I would love to see the other two tools that I see as being super important, which is darkness and the natural yeah. arc of light, that these are two important tools that have uh, not been brought into the scope of all lighting designers. And so I, I just hope that that also, the arc of light as, as the natural daylight cycle, but also, um, as you're saying, the color of light, that these are brought more readily into uh, designs. So, uh, yeah, you want to comment? No, I mean, any lighting designer who, who would like to embrace the lighting principles outlined, it starts with um, start with natural darkness and add light as needed. You know, as you say, you know, don't, don't start with the assumption you've got to put some light out there. You know, start with the assumption that, you know, <laughs> what, what's the status? And let's add it where and when we need it in the amounts and the quantities and the, the spectrum that is required. Right. Well, the good news is the National Lighting Bureau has uh, has is presenting this podcast. So they they are uh, largely lighting designers, and so they're they're gonna they're on board with starving for darkness and what we're trying to do here. Um, so I mean, I think we're gonna uh, what we have to do is start the convincing and the persuasion process in the lighting industry. Um, that's where NAILED comes in, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, where the National Lighting Bureau comes in, um, bringing the information from the IDA, educating people, getting a consensus within the industry. So what I've always said is that in, within NAILED, which is interesting, an interesting environment for um, you know people that distribute light, lighting, as soon as something becomes uncool to do within NAILED, mm -hmm. all the other distributors start to adopt it. So you need to get uh, there's two or three distributors that I know and nailed that are, you know, the top guys. And as soon as they start um, a sort of social uh, moray of what you you don't know about the dark sky. What do you mean you don't you you're not doing that? Uh, you got to start doing that um, and get your, get your people in Ellis evolve and get them understanding this because this is a really important issue. And all the cool distributors, Ruskin, all the cool cats, we all know about this. And all those, you know, we need to start that kind of um, momentum towards that, where it's the good lighting people, the people that know lighting, know about this issue and are addressing it as best they can as knowledge comes out, as ordinances are updated, as controls are, are updated. And that will, I think that will really put some electricity into this thing. Well, we're excited to follow that journey and to support that journey. Because <laughs> as you say, as I said, most, most lights are not specified by lighting designers. No, it's, no. no, it's an afterthought. You build your building and you go and slap a bunch of wall packs on it with no thought for what your neighbors are doing. You know, nope. um, you know I've, 
you know, I live out on the outskirts of Tucson and, you know, ex-urban community. And I can see the, the, the new wall packs that go to my neighbors a mile away. <laughs> it's very difficult, man. I'll tell you this as a, as a lighting contractor and lighting distributor, uh, it's, it's very difficult to resist that momentum we talked about in the beginning. We need to turn that, the flywheel is spinning in one direction and we need to start to stop it and start to spin it in the other direction. And I think we can do that. I think we have the tools, we have the uh, ability to do it, we have the knowledge to solve this problem. And I'm, I'm hoping for a Montreal protocol type meeting within the next three to five years, including nations, states, and the lighting industry. Yeah. Well, there was a report that was developed um, last year by... Um, was author called the Dark and Quiet Sky Study. It was actually started out of looking at the the issue of the satellite mega constellations and how the you know, the billionaires who are launching satellites into the sky are kind of impairing our ability to see the stars and affecting professional astronomers. But that report also included ground based light pollution. So that report in the Dark and Quiet Skies is going to be considered by uh, one of the UN committees on science and technology uh, this year with, a, with, a, with that very much that thought, you know, we, we need that sort of international guidance and, and, and raise the profile of this issue at the international level and hope that nation states will start to adopt uh, sets of, of guidelines for dealing with, with light pollution. Ruskin Hartley, thank you for being a guest on the Starving for Darkness podcast, my friend. Pleasure. Good luck launching this venture. <laughs> Thank you. We're hungry for darkness. We're starving for darkness. That's what the show's about. It's brought to you by our friends at Rab Lighting. Go to R-A-B-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G forward slash dark sky, Greg. That's right. And they're going to satisfy your hunger because they've got all the fixtures you need mm. to make it dark sky compliant. They've been committed to the issue for years. They've been around for 75 years. Absolutely. Every fixture you can imagine on the exterior, Rab has, and probably the best one out there uh, in every category. And they have the interior covered. Lamps, fixtures, retrofit kits, recessed cans, everything. So Rab's a complete lighting company. They're committed to Dark Sky. They've been around for 75 years, and they have the best control system in the game. Yeah. Light Cloud. Ooh. Everything can be controlled remotely from the Light Cloud. What a good name. What a good product. They got it all covered. Like whoever came up with that name is a marketing genius, actually. Light cloud. That's exactly what it is. It's a cloud, and it's the heart of the dark sky movement. Light cloud. Which is why you got to go to R-A-B-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G.com forward slash dark sky. Go there right now, folks, because we're all hungry. We're all starving. It's time. This is, a, this is a, a, an environmental movement that we know how to fix. We know what to do. We just got to bring that light cloud in. Yeah. R-A-B-L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G dot com forward slash dark sky. And if you've made it this far already, I know I speak on behalf of myself and Jane and Greg and everybody at Get a Grip Management, Get a Grip Studios, the producer, Scott Wachter, and the producer, Scott Griffin. Yeah, there's two Scots. And Bree in the office. Folks, uh, all our colleagues listening to this, nothing but love for you. Bye for now. <laughs>